Good morning. I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here at Chapel Point, and good to have you here worshiping with us today. The weekend after, we celebrated Good Friday and Easter, and during this time period, the 40 days between Christ's resurrection and his ascension, and we're reminded that in Christ's death as our substitute and his resurrection, it was a defining battle and a spiritual war that has been going on since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end of time in the book of Revelation. A spiritual war that we are involved in whether we know it or not. And that Christ has won the, the ultimate victory in his death paying the price for our sin and in his resurrection giving victory over death and over the host of hell. We know that Christ will also ultimately triumph as he ascended to heaven as a conquering victor. That's how he's pictured in the New Testament. As he's seated at the Father's right hand even now. And as he comes again, not on a donkey, but on a white horse in triumph and victory. And that he will rule and reign for a thousand years. And then ultimately, that victory will be his in the new heaven and the new earth. And so I'm glad to know that we're on this side of the empty tomb, aren't you? And so we get to celebrate today that reality. And we're jumping back into the book of Exodus. I'd invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 7. That's where we're going to be. We're going to begin to talk about the plagues in Egypt. And those plagues, uh, those, uh, those experiences in Egypt were battles in a war of the gods. I don't think we can really comprehend the significance of those events if we don't understand that behind them there was a whole theology in Egypt, there was a whole pantheon of gods that were being attacked by the true and living God in every one of those plagues and the liberation of Israel from bondage. You know, we see, read books and see movies about the cosmic um, warfare that goes on. Maybe you've seen The Lord of the Rings or The uh, Chronicles of Narnia or Star Wars, and all of those have to do with that, that sense of things, that there is this cosmic battle going on between good and evil. And sometimes those battles break out into the open, and we see things in history that have happened, and those battles, those wars, represent a, a spiritual battle that is going on. For instance... When you think about the Battle of Normandy, the date was June 6, 1944. Adolf Hitler and the Nazis came to power in 1933 in Germany and terrorized the continent of, of uh, Europe, North Africa, uh, during that time period. It was a time where six million Jews were killed um, systematically in concentration camps. Two-thirds of the European Jews were killed. But the Nazis also enslaved 15 million people from 20 different nations. And so the, just think of the terror and the horror that was there. A lot of those workers died from mal malnutrition, from torture, and from mistreatment. When the Battle of Normandy happened on June 6, 1944, there was 156,000 British, U.S., and Canadian troops that invaded five beaches across a 50-mile stretch of northwest France. There was 11,000 aircraft in that battle. There were 7,000 ships and landing craft. There were 10,000 vehicles and, and uh, 156,000 that were there. And in one day, think of this, in one battle, one day, 4,400 Allied troops were killed. They gave their lives on the beach of Normandy. And uh, we're not sure of all the casualties, but it's up to possibly 9,000 German casualties that happened that day. But at the end of the day, the Allies had a beachhead in Germany, and in, in, in France, and in 11 months, they would defeat Germany. They would liberate France. They would liberate all of these countries, ultimately even liberating the people of Germany. Friends, behind that battle was a battle of good and evil. And that battle of good and evil is going on today. Uh, you, you have to be blind not to see it in our culture today. And you and I are involved in a war. We're involved in a spiritual battle, the cosmic battle of good and evil. But this is not a conventional war 
fought with conventional weapons. Matter of fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.4 speaks these words of insight. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not of human origin or human dependence, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So God is going to show in these plagues his divine power to demolish strongholds because the war of the gods, small g, proves the victorious power of the living God to redeem his people from bondage. What we're going to see in the plagues both today and next week and the week after is we're going to see the collision between the false gods of Egypt and the true one and living God. And when that happens, there's going to be such a a collision that God, the true and living God of the Bible, the triune God of the Bible, will be the only God left standing because only he is the true God. And so from this point on, in the rest of the Old Testament, in the historical books, in the Psalms, and in the prophets, they will refer back to the plagues as how God showed that he alone is the true and living God. And by the way, the gospel has that same focus for us. We look back to the cross and the empty tomb, the ascension of Christ. We look back to that and say, we have confidence because of that, that we are worshiping the true and living God. But something you need to understand, behind every idol, behind every false religion, behind every false theology or philosophy, is the activity of the evil one, Satan himself and his hosts. That Satan is actually promoting, matter of fact, the New Testament tells us that false teachers are promoting doctrines of demons. What does that mean? That behind every idol, behind every false religion, behind every false god, that friends, when we're living in a culture that says tolerance of everything is really what we need to do, we can't understand that if we understand the Bible. Because idolatry and false religion and false philosophies are, are simply fronts for the, act, the activity of Satan in this spiritual battle. So three key insights I want you to keep in mind as we go through our study today. So three things I want you to see. First of all, remember the theme of this series in the book of Exodus. We are redeemed in order to be ruled. We are redeemed in order to be ruled. And this is going to begin to show God's power redeeming Israel. He's going to redeem them out of 400 years of slavery in order to rule over them as his people. Friends, you aren't redeemed to do what you want. You're redeemed so that you can submit to the, to the righteous rule of a loving king, God. Secondly, the, the plagues were an attack on the gods of Egypt. I don't think you can understand the plagues rightly without understanding the key to the plagues, which is given to us in Exodus 12, 12. I know that's towards the end of the plagues, but listen to this verse. God said, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, this is the Passover, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, I am the Lord. Let me say that again, don't miss it. God is saying that in the plagues, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, I am the Lord. These plagues are not simply random judgments from God. They are frontal attacks in the war of the gods, every one of them representing a battle against the theology, the gods, the false gods of Egypt. So we need to understand that. And thirdly, the plagues show the power of the true God to redeem his people. In Exodus chapter 3, when God met with Moses at the burning bush and revealed his name as the I Am, God said this, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. Friends, just I want to stop there for a minute. Some of you are going through difficulty today. You're going through hard times. God says, I've seen the affliction of my people. I hear their cry, and I know their sufferings. And I want to just say that to you today as a pastor. If you're going through difficulty, God knows, God hears God cares about what you're going through. And sometimes you, you wonder about that, but God says it right here. That's the kind of God he is. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. 400 years of slavery. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. 
and I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders, the miracles, the plagues that I will do in it, and he will let you go. So in chapter 3, back there, God says, I am going to level these plagues in order to deliver my people, in order to liberate them because I care about them, but in order to, to actually confront Pharaoh who has oppressed them. So whenever there's a war, there's a battle plan. And in the, um, in the Normandy invasion, they called it Operation Overlord. Uh, that was the code name for that. There were plans that were actually laid. Um, even during the bombing of London, Winston Churchill was in the bunker planning for the invasion of Germany. And so later you had people like Eisenhower and other great generals that would gather together and they would plan where would be the best place in order to be able to uh, start an invasion force there. So there has to be a battle plan. And in Genesis, in, in Exodus chapter 7, we have the battle plan. Notice what happens here in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like a god to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron will tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my, my host, my army, my people, and the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So part of the purpose of the plagues is that the people of Egypt would know the difference between their false gods and the true God. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when he spoke to Pharaoh. So God says in, these, in the opening verses of chapter 7, I am going to, I'm going to establish my purpose here. I'm going to establish my, uh, my authority in this battle plan. And Moses, you're going to represent God. You're going to represent God. And um, Aaron is going to be your priest. You're going to represent my power, my authority. Aaron is going to be your mouthpiece, and he's going to speak your word. But what you need to know is that the Egyptians thought that Pharaoh was the incarnation of the son of uh, Re, who was the, the head of the uh, Egyptian pantheon of gods. So they thought Pharaoh was a god. So now the true and living God sends his representative, Moses. Aaron has his mouthpiece and has this battle plan. And he's telling Moses, here's, what, here's what's going to happen. I am going to give you the commands. I'm going to tell you what to say. But I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh's not going to listen, and he's not going to let the people go. So in other words, this is, going to be, this is going to be the plan, but you need to understand that it's going to be a long battle. It's going to be a developed war. When you consider this, um, God said in, in Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, listen to this, who is the Lord? Who is this Jehovah you're talking about that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh just threw down the gauntlet. Who, who's the Lord? Who is this Jehovah you're talking about? I have all kinds of gods in Egypt. I'm a god. I'm, I'm not going to respond to him. I'm not going to do what he says. And so the battle plan, God says, I'm going to multiply my signs and wonders. There's going to be real shock and awe. I'm going to lay my hand on Egypt with my power and my judgment. I'm going to do great judgments so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And I'm going to stretch out my hand to bring my people, to liberate my people. They are my army and they're going to share in my victory. They are my people. They belong to me. They are the children of Israel. I'm going to keep my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And friends, in the same way, you and I are part of the army of the Lord. In the same way, you and I are, are those who are the people of God, who belong to him and to each other. And in the same way, you and I are children of promise. And he says, I'm going to, let, I'm going to do that. And Moses obeyed what God said. It's kind of interesting in verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just what God commanded. Now, earlier in Exodus, 
Moses came up with objections and excuses about why he wasn't going to do what God said. No excuses, no objections. He just does exactly what God says. Can I recommend that to you? In this spiritual battle, friends, you need to learn that the response needs to be faith and obedience. Later in the book of Joshua, Joshua has an encounter, sort of like Moses's, but he uh, encounters this man with a sword drawn in his hand outside the, the walls of Jericho. And Joshua, being a military man, goes up to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? Whose side are you on, in other words? And, and many of us believe it was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus who then says to him, I am captain of the Lord's hosts. I like what one preacher said, I haven't come to take sides, I've come to take over. Take off your shoes for the place where you stand is holy. Moses and Aaron obeyed God. Friends, listen. Have you learned that in this spiritual battle, your faith and your obedience are pivotal, pivotal to you experiencing the victory and the, the freedom that Christ wants to give you? So um, Pharaoh does not respond, so there's a warning blast. Starting at verse 8, there's a warning blast going to be given. In other words, this is sort of like shelling the island before the Marines land. God's going to say, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you an, ex, an opportunity here, Pharaoh. And it introduces a lot of the major themes that are going to happen in the plagues. The Lord said to, to Moses and to Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by a miracle. Friends, unbelievers a lot of times want to see a miracle, not because their heart has changed, but simply because they want to be entertained. And Pharaoh says, you claim that you're a follower of the true and living God? Show me. Show me. A miracle. And so God said, had said to Aaron and Moses, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it can become a serpent, that it can become a snake. Now, just pause for a minute. We do know that Pharaoh had a crown that on top of the crown over his head was a, the shape of a cobra. And that the symbol of Pharaoh's rule was a snake. Why? Because when Pharaoh was coronated as Pharaoh, he swore allegiance to Satan. The words he said was, was this, O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a ruler of the living. Let me rule, uh, let me be powerful, a powerful of the spirits. And so in those words, Pharaoh offered his soul to the devil. And so here, in this warning blast... Aaron throws down the, the staff, and it becomes what? A snake in front of the snake. Look what Pharaoh does. He calls in his servants. He called his wise men, the sorcerers, verse 11, the magicians of Egypt, and they did the same by their occult practices. So, friends, I want you to know, I don't believe what these magicians did was trickery or sleight of hand. I think what they did was supernatural, and, and it was through occult and through Satan's power that they did that. So they throw down their rods, and it becomes a snake. And throughout the early plagues, there is imitation after imitation by the magicians of the different plagues until they show they don't have the power to do that. But look what happens next. Each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Friends, you need to understand that we are involved in the kind of a spiritual battle that we need God's power and we need God's help. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we're not wrestling with flesh and blood, not with mere human enemies, but with a, against rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of e evil and the heavenly plans. He's actually talking about rank and file of demonic power. Therefore, he said, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So imagine this. 
the wise men each throw down their, the magicians throw down their rods, they become snakes, but then Aaron's rod swallows, that, that is a snake, swallows up their snakes. What's the symbolism of that? Who has the greater power? Pharaoh or the gods of Egypt? Or the true and living God represented by Moses and Aaron? Listen, friends. Jesus Christ had authority over demonic power when he was here on earth. He spoke and demons trembled. Then he spoke of his church and he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. So Christ entrusts his power to his church under his authority to be able to do spiritual battle. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, he said, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than the one that is in the world. As we're in this spiritual battle, you don't have power, you don't have authority, but Christ does. And through prayer and through the word of God, through the spiritual armor he's given to us, we can do spiritual battle, not in our own strength, not in our own weaponry, but through what he has provided. The same confidence that sent David out to fight Goliath. You're given, and I'm given. The same power that sent Philip to Samaria to do spiritual battle with the most powerful magician in Samaria and showed that the power of the Holy Spirit was greater. The same power that sent Paul to Ephesus to be able to do battle with all of the magicians there, and they wound up having a big a big bonfire burning the occult books. And the, there was a riot because nobody was worshiping the idols of Diana anymore in, in, in Ephesus because it showed there's only one true living God. It, it's sort of like Elijah in 1 Kings 18 going against the, the prophets of Baal. And Baal was the God who's supposed to bring rain and thunder and lightning. And they, tr- they pray all day and sacrifice themselves on the altar and nothing happens. And Elisha prays and God is the God who sends the thunder and lightning. The battle of the gods in the Bible shows there's only one true living God. There is no other God but the triune God of the Bible, friends. And we need to know that. We need to know that. So what's the response of Pharaoh? Verse 13, his heart was hardened and he wouldn't listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, a couple of things about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. You need to know that his heart being hardened was a judgment from God. A judgment from God because, he had, because of what he had done to the people of God. For 400 years, they had been in uh, bondage. So his heart is hardened. But there's something else you need to know about Egyptian theology here that plays into this. So when Pharaoh died, supposedly... He stands before a female deity who has a set of scales. And on one scale, and this is the judgment that he's to face, on one scale there is a feather. Just picture this. On the other is the heart of Pharaoh. And if his heart is heavier than a feather, he doesn't get to go in the afterlife. A crocodile or rhinoceros is going to dismember him. That's, That's Egyptian theology. So think about this. When Pharaoh's heart is hardened, one of the Hebrew words that's used is it is heavy. And when Pharaoh is dismembered, it is chaos for the land of Egypt. So imagine an Egyptian reading this or hearing this. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Oh, no, we're in a mess. Yes, you are, but not not for what you think because you're worshiping the wrong God. And so we start the plagues. We have four battles we're going to look at here. The Battle of the Bloody Nile, starting in verse 14. The Battle of the Bloody Nile. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refused to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water, the Nile. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take your hand, the staff that turned into a servant. We don't know why Pharaoh was at the Nile. He could have been bathing. He could have been just there. They actually worshiped at the Nile. So, but he was there. And say to him, the Lord, Jehovah, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go, liberate them, that they may serve me. By the way, that word serve implies worship me. Worship me in the wilderness. And so far you haven't obeyed. 
So here is Moses speaking for God, calling Pharaoh, who's supposed to be a God, to obey the true and living God. Thus says the Lord, by this you'll know that I am the Lord. You said you didn't know me. You're going to get to know me. Behold, with a staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile. It's going to turn into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the Nile will stink. Have you ever smelled a whole lot of dead fish who have been around for a while? It's going to stink. And the Egyptians are going to grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch your hand out over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals that that come off of the uh, Nile, and the ponds and the pools of water, so they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and vessels of stone. So here's what you need to understand. The Egyptians depended upon the Nile River for life. They depended upon the Nile River for uh, water. They depended upon the Nile River for cooking, for, for bathing. They depended upon it for transportation. They depended upon it because it brought great rich soil in the flood season that flooded that whole area and allowed them to grow their crops. They depended upon the Nile River for transportation. Matter of fact, in one of the ancient Egyptian hymns, it said, Hail to thee, O Nile, that issues from the earth and comes to keep Egypt alive. That's how important the Nile River was. But something else in the theology of Egypt, they actually believed that the Nile related to to four of their gods. Uh, Happy, who was the bull god, is the god of the Nile. Isis is the goddess of the Nile. And then there's a ram god of the Nile, and Orisis who is the the god of earth and vegetation, symbolized that flooding of the Nile. Matter of fact, Orisis, this god, they believed that the Nile was his bloodstream. So for the blood to turn red, for, for um, for the Nile to turn into blood, was a great confrontation of this god. I want you to know, as you, as you look at the plague and what happens, the, uh, you have the water turning to blood all over the place, even in containers. You have fish dying. You have the river stinking. You have the fact that the Egyptians have no water. They have to start digging around the Nile River it's where, where this bloody water has been sifted through the sand so that they can even find drinking water or water to cook with. Look what happens here. The fish stank and the, the, Nile, died, the, the Nile died and the, and the Nile stank so the Egyptians couldn't drink water. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret art. So here's the imitation. Here's the imitation that they do. Interesting, they couldn't reverse the plague. They had no power over God to reverse the plague. But they could imitate the plague. Which really wasn't much of a help if you already have bloody water all over the place. Not much help. And so um, when, when that happens, their canals, their ponds, the pools of water became as blood. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But look what happened. Because the magicians did that, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he wouldn't listen to them, just like God said. And what does Pharaoh do? He goes back to his palace. He doesn't really care about his people. He's got a stubborn, rebellious heart. So he goes back to his house while all the Egyptians are digging along along the Nile for water to drink, for they couldn't drink. And seven days, a whole week goes by with a bloody Nile. God, battle number one, shows he's the true and living God. God shows that the four gods of the Nile are not God, that he alone is the true and living God. And Pharaoh's heart wasn't any more responsive. So you come to the next battle, the battle of the frogs. The battle of the frogs. So in each of these battles, you have instructions. Then you have the plague, which is, a, it, it is, it is the battle itself. It's when the power of God is shown. And then you have a response. So instruction, plague, response. So here's the instruction in the battle of the frogs. The Lord, chapter 8, verse 1, said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Jehovah, thus says the Lord, Let my people go that I might serve thee. By the way, do you notice God doesn't negotiate God doesn't say, well, you didn't quite do what I asked, so I'm going to sort of lower the standard here a little bit. Not at all. God does not change his mind. Jonah found that out. We'll find that out too. God's not going to change his mind. He says, same message. But if you refuse to let them go, I'm going to plague your country with frogs. Uh, By the way, the Hebrew word for frog is croaker. 
croaker, all right? So um, I'm, gonna, I'm going to plague your, family, your, your country with frogs. The Nile is going to swarm with frogs that are going to come up into your house. Now, frogs came out of the Nile, folks, but not like this. This is a supernatural event. They're going to come into your house. And notice the details here. Uh, kind of just picture this in your mind. They're going to come into your home. They're going to come into your bedroom. They're going to come up on your bed. They're going to come in the houses of your servants. So this is Pharaoh's home. You went back to your palace in the last plague. I'm going to invade your palace with frogs. And it's going to be in your ovens and your kneading bowls. So ladies, you're trying to cook and there's frogs all over the place. The frogs will come up to you and your people and all your servants. And the Lord says to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, the canals, the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magician did the same thing by their secret arts and made the frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Magicians, you're not helping anything here. We already have enough frogs. But they're trying to prove that they can imitate the supernatural power of God, which is all they could do. Now, you need to understand something about this um, that made it more problematic to have all these frogs. The goddess um, Hecht is pictured with the head of a frog and sometimes the whole body of a frog. So they had a goddess that was a frog. And because of that, the Egyptians couldn't kill frogs. So what do you do when you got a land full of frogs and you can't kill them because it represents your god? Matter of fact, another one of the gods uh, protected crocodiles who could eat the frogs because the Egyptians couldn't kill the frogs. So here you have a land covered with frogs. Now just imagine this. I mean, it is very descriptive of what's going on. Every place you walk, there's frogs. Frogs are slippery. You slip and fall into frogs. You climb in bed at night and there's frogs. You go, to, you go to cook, and there's frogs. Every place you turn, there are frogs. Can you imagine the sound? Ribbit, 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 all over the land of Egypt. So, what happens? Verse 8, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord. This is very interesting. Pharaoh has a prayer request. Friends, not everyone who asks for prayer has a change of heart. It's a prayer request. He said, he's not saying, plead to one of my Egyptian gods. He's not going to his wise men to ask them to plead or his priests to plead to their false deities. He said, pray to Jehovah for me. That he'll take away the frogs from my people. And I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses says... Be pleased to command me when I'm to plead for you and your people that the frogs may be cut off from your houses and left only in the Nile. In other words, Moses says, just so you know that this was not simply a natural thing that happened, but a supernatural thing that happens, Pharaoh, I'm going to give you permission to choose when the frogs are delivered. Now, now if I was Pharaoh, I would say, like, right now would be a good time. <laughs> Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Tomorrow. I'll spend another day listening to the ribbits across Egypt. I'll spend another night sleeping with frogs in my bed. That's how hardened his heart was. I'd rather put up with the frogs than... And so Moses said, okay. Moses said, it's as you say, verse 10, that you may know that there's no one like the Lord our God. Please notice verse 10. Underline verse 10. The purpose of the plagues is that... Not only the Israels would be, Israelites would be delivered, but there's a missional focus for Egypt that you will know there's one true and living God because God cares about the nations, not just the Israelites. And he said that you might know that I am the Lord and there is no other God like me. There's no one like the Lord our God. There is no other God but me. The frogs will go away from you, your houses and your servants and your people. They will be left only in the Nile. Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs as he agreed with Pharaoh, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyard and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. I would imagine so. Dead frogs all over the place. But... 
predictable, just like God said. After there was relief, there was a respite, even though he said he would let the people go, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he wouldn't listen to them. God, again, you have two battles. God's won both of them, the true and living God, against the false gods of Egypt. So what happens next is the third plague, the plague of the gnats, or you might call them the plague of the mosquitoes. Because it, it, there's a very po strong possibility that that's exactly what's being talked about. So the third plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff. He doesn't give any warning. There's no co confrontation of Pharaoh here because Pharaoh has hardened his heart. He went back on his promise. So there's no discussion with Pharaoh before this plague. Stretch out your staff and strike the, the dust of the earth that it might become gnats all over the land of Egypt. So Set is the god of the desert, according to Egyptian theology. And so there's, there's going to be a dust storm. There's going to be a sandstorm. And he says, stretch out your hand over the dust of the earth, that there, there will be gnats or mosquitoes on man and on beasts. The dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts, by their occult practices, to produce those gnats or mosquitoes, but they could not. There was gnats all over people, and all over beasts. And the magicians now go into Pharaoh and make this statement. This is the finger of God. What an admission. They were representing all of the different deities of Egypt, but they're basically saying, we've seen nothing like this before. This is the finger of God. Interesting, in the plagues, it talks about the hand of God and the arm of God, but the magicians talk about the finger of God. It is with God's finger that he is going to record the Ten Commandments. Psalm 8, verse 3 says, it is the finger of God that he created the heavens and the earth. God can do a lot just with his little finger. That's a picture. And they're saying, this is the finger of some God we don't know. Now think about what it's like to have not just a few mosquitoes bothering you. Anybody here has ever gone camping? You've gone camping? You don't have a lot of campers here. Anybody here who's ever had mosquitoes on your back lawn? Yeah. So um, when, when my youngest daughter, Rachel, and, and I went on a missions trip to India, we had a couple of experiences there that were uh, interesting. One, we're, um, we're 12 hours away from home, uh, 12 hours uh, time change, I should say. Took us a whole, more than a day, 36 hours to be able to fly there. And um, so we're, we're there in Calcutta, and there's a 12-hour time dif difference. We had had shots for things like malaria, but the home that we were staying in didn't have screened windows, and it was hot and humid. So the windows are open, and um, there was a garbage dump rather close by. So the mosquitoes were having their way with us. Rachel's on the other side of the room. It's the middle of the night. I can't sleep because of, um, first of all, because of jet lag, and second of all, because of mosquitoes. So I would cover my head with my sheet until I couldn't breathe anymore. Then I'd bring the sheet down, and the mosquitoes would attack, so I'd bring it back up. And I thought that Rachel was asleep on the other side of the room, and I, I hear her whimpering. And I said, Rachel, are you, are you awake? And she says, yeah, the mosquitoes are just, and I can't sleep. And I said, I know. I said, I've, I've got it figured out. She said, what do you have figured out? I said, we are on the final approach of the greater Calcutta mosquito port. And we just, we laughed together, and we got up, and we just had a, had a time together and, and prayed together. And, and uh, she said months later that that, that time together in the middle of the night really helped her get through that difficult time. By the way, our luggage didn't show up for a week and a half. So just very interesting time. Uh, mosquitoes all over people. Mosquitoes all over beasts. This was not just a few mosquitoes, folks. It's like covered head to toe with mosquitoes and mosquito bites. It's agony. It's painful. So what happens? Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he still wouldn't listen, even though his... His magician said, this is the finger of God. Battle number three. Jehovah three. 
Gods of Egypt, zero. I want you to notice what happens next. The Battle of the Flies. The Battle of the Flies. The fourth battle. God says to Moses, here's the instruction. Rise up early in the morning. Present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you don't let my people go, I'm going to send swarms of flies on you, your servants, your people, and their houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies. And on the ground that they stand... But on that day I will set apart, in other words, this plague's going to be different. I'm going to set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell. They're not going to have the swarms of flies. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Now something you need to understand, in, in the ancient world they believed that most gods were territorial gods. They had certain power in certain areas. And God is saying, I want you to know that I'm not a territorial god. Matter of fact, I'm going to choose where the flies go. They're not going to go to Goshen where my people are, but they're going to go all over Egypt. So you will know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. In the midst of the earth. That I am God over everything. And I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout the land of Egypt. And the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. So it's interesting, these, these particular flies are, are biting flies, and they just are very, very painful. If you've ever been up in the UP, the, the black fly season is not the time that I want to go camping up there. Not the time I want to do that. So there is one of the gods, um, Yuakit is, is her name, and she was pictured as a fly. She had fly wings. So this is, again, an attack on one of the deities of Egypt. There's also a god called Beelzebub, which is actually a name used for Satan in the New Testament. And he is called, get this, the Lord of the Flies. So here again is a frontal attack against the deities of Egypt. And so God is going to show that he alone is the true and living God. Now friends, I grew up working on a dairy farm. When you have cows and manure, you have flies. Okay? We had a farmhouse. I can remember back in the day, my parents hanged from the ceiling these things that flies would, there's like a, a sticky paper, and they'd be covered with flies, and we'd have to throw them away and, and get another one up there. Flies, flies, flies everywhere. Don't you just love having flies all over your house or all over everything? This was a plague of flies, friends. Uh, like a locust plague, there's flies everywhere. There's flies in everybody's house. There's flies all over everyone, and it's just biting flies. It must have been biting Pharaoh a little bit because he responds. Look at verse 25. Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and says, Go sacrifice to the Lord, but uh, stay close. Stay in the land. Moses said, Not so fast, Pharaoh. It wouldn't be right for us to do so, for the offerings we'll sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to them before their eyes, will they not stone us? You need to understand that while God required, um, for instance, cattle to be sacrificed or rams to be sacrificed, those were considered sacred by the Egyptians. So Moses is saying, uh, we're not going to do this in the land lest there be a revolt against us by the Egyptians, lest they stone us. We must go three days' journey into the wilderness, and there we'll sacrifice to the Lord where he tells us. In other words, Pharaoh, you don't get to call the shots. God's calling the shots. Pharaoh said, well, I'll let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only don't go very far away. And then he says, plead for me. Again, he's not asking for his false gods to be prayed to, but to the true and living God. And Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead for you with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again or deceive again, go back, renege on his commitment by letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people, and not one fly remained. This is a supernatural answer to prayer. The flies coming was an answer to prayer, showing the power of God. The, fl the flies being delivered also showed the power of God. But 
Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. Friends, um, you got to understand what's going on here. This isn't just the story of some judgments. This is not simply the, the story of, of, of all of these events happening, like a, the battle of a bloody Nile, the battle of the frogs, the battle of the mosquitoes, the battle of the, of the flies. Behind each one of these is a battle between the false gods of Egypt and the one true living God of the Bible. The God who reveals himself as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God who is a creator of heaven and earth. The God who is good and wise and everywhere present and sovereign and in control. A God who hears his people's cry and in mercy and grace and love reaches out to them. A God who is righteous and holy. A God who is everywhere present. A God who hears the prayers of people who turn to him. A God who wants to be known, not just by his people, but by all nations. That God is our God. And friends, there is no other God. The false gods of this world aren't God at all. And we live in a culture that says tolerance means we must affirm that every religion is true and right. And we cannot do that if we believe the Bible. There's only one true living God. He's a God who revealed himself in creation, in scripture, and in his son Jesus Christ so that we can know him. And he loves people. And he died for our sins. And he rose again. That God is the true and living God. And these plagues are simply demonstrating that when all the plagues were done, friends, the economy of Egypt was in ashes. Their agriculture was destroyed. Their military was decimated. And their theology was totally broken, showing there's one true living God. So in response, what do we do? I invite you to examine your heart on three issues as we wrap this up. Three questions. Is your heart more like Pharaoh's or more like Moses? Is your heart hardened and stubborn and resistant to God? Maybe it's because you've made self your God rather than the true and living God. Friends, one of the greatest revolutions that happens in the life of a transformed follower of Christ is say, I'm going to dethrone self and enthrone the true and living God on the throne of my heart. Is your heart hardened, stubborn, and resistant like Pharaoh? Or like Moses, believing God and obeying God because he is God? Is your heart more like Pharaoh or more like Moses? Friends, I know. I've, I have cared for people, ministered to people, walked alongside people way too long to not think that in this place right here today, there's some people with hardened hearts. And your anger, your rage against God, your denial of God, your stubbornness towards God. Friends, just read these plagues and understand who you're messing with. There is one true living God, and he calls for absolute surrender of our lives to him. Secondly, is my heart trusting God in my spiritual battles or self? Friends, you can't be victorious in the spiritual warfare by trusting in yourself. The Bible makes it clear over and over again that the battle is the Lord's. That you can't be victorious over sin or temptation. You can't walk through the trials of life and difficulties of life fighting the battle in your own strength. And you don't need to. Because everything you need to live a life of victory is in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul said at the end of Romans chapter 8. I love this passage. He said, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. He uses the word conquer and then he adds a prefix that, that sounds like this, upper. 
In other words, we are super conquerors through him that loved us. Not through self, not through depending upon ourselves, but only through trusting in him. And lastly, is my heart worshiping the true and living God or idols? Is my heart worshiping the true God? And before we're quick to say, no, I don't, I don't worship any of these gods of Egypt. And somebody has wisely said that the ancient world put their gods on the shelf and we put them in the self. And when we worship money and things and pleasure, when we worship even our families more than we worship the true and living God, my friends, that's idolatry. And God feels the same way about it that he did the idols in Egypt. Is the true and living God sitting upon the throne of your heart today or is self? If you didn't think idolatry is a problem for the church, then why did John write his first letter in the last verse of 1 John? He writes this, little children, keep yourself from idols. Why would he say that to believers if there wasn't a real danger of idolatry in the church? So the question is, is your heart worshiping the true God or worshiping idols? Friends, see the plagues speak to us, speak to our battles that we're facing today, this week. You go out into your week, this world, and in this world, that is a battle zone. It's, it's a place of spiritual war. And you need to go out armed because your heart is tender and responsive like Moses, and you're trusting in God rather than self, and because you are worshiping the true and living God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you because we believe that you are the true and living God. We believe in the Trinity. We believe that, that you are our Heavenly Father. And we believe that you, Lord Jesus, are the one who is our Savior and our Shepherd. That you, Holy Spirit, have come to dwell in us and make us your temple. All the gods of this world and the religions of this world and the false philosophies of this world are simply fronts for the enemy of our souls to try to detract and distract from the true and living God. So God, may we have hearts that are softened and tender and responsive and believing and obedient to you. May we trust in you and in the power of our risen and ascended Lord for every spiritual battle we face this week. May we not depend upon ourselves. May we be armed with the armor of Christ. And God, I pray that we would cast down every idol from the throne of our hearts so that only you, the true and living God, would reign supreme. God, as we face our battles, we claim that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray.